Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. On Christmas Day 2021, the most powerful space telescope ever built, the James Webb, launched into space. Standing by for terminal count. At two the DDO, attention for the count final. This, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, unity, top. And we have engine start. And lift off. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. It traveled almost a million miles in under a month to reach its final destination. It's on a mission to study the earliest stars and to look as far back as possible into the universe's past. This multi-billion dollar telescope is named after James L. Webb, he is best known for his work in the early days of the Apollo program. It is the next step in space telescope development with different eyes than the famed Hubble. Hubble can't see that uh, out very far, and James Webb will be able to take that, that much farther out. We'll see colors uh, and wavelengths of light that Hubble can't see. Special guest Dr. Phil Plate has the latest, and he'll also take part in our Seven Questions segment. But how did we get to this moment in space and astronomical research? Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Milam, and we will be talking all things wet coming up next. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. 7's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. NASA's next generation space telescope, the James Webb, will soon start sending back images. Experts are making sure it is working correctly, but they've already had a minor scare. A micrometeor impacted the unit. Fortunately, it did not damage any of the important equipment. So for an inside look at this remarkable space telescope, we chat with Dr. Stephanie Milam, Webb Deputy Project Scientist for Planetary Science at NASA. Thank you for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, to me, by the way, I grew up in the space age, uh, the Apollo program. So I love this. This is, uh, to me, one of the most incredible achievements that there has been. Uh, can you give me a brief history of Webb and how long it took to get it from concept to reality? Sure. Uh, so the Webb telescope has been um, brought or mentioned, in, I guess, in context as a successor of the Hubble Space Telescope, which is true in some senses in that it was because of the Hubble Space Telescope that the Webb Space Telescope was actually conceived and designed. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because we had this, this um, innovative director of the Hubble Space Telescope that used uh, a bit of his time that he had um, for, the, for the Hubble. And he stared at a blank piece of sky and, and looked basically for a very long time to see what he could actually see and see what the telescope could actually see. 
And in the blank piece of sky, they found, you know, thousands of galaxies. And they were actually be able to see back into the universe um, to like the early years of the universe beyond the Big Bang. So let's call it like the teenage years of the universe. <laughs> um, so very, very old, distant galaxies. And this was something we never thought the Hubble Space Telescope could do. And so as scientists, of course, we want to do better and we want to know more. So the only way to look even further back in time was to, to design and build an infrared telescope that's just as sensitive as Hubble is at optical wavelengths, but something in the infrared so that we can see all the way back to those toddler or infant years of the universe right. um, beyond the Big Bang and the Dark Age. And so that's how the Webb telescope was, was conceived. It was... Um, we knew it had to be large, extremely sensitive, and operate at uh, near-infrared to mid-infrared wavelengths so that we could study these galaxies. So um, it is a, a, the successor. There's a lot of complementary science. And Hubble, because of Hubble, is why we have the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, but it's not the same. It's very different. Um, and all of this actually happened back in the early 90s. And so. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Um, the Webb Telescope was finally, you know, in some version of itself, um, confirmed and finalized at NASA in the 90s. So um, it's taken us a long time to get here. I've been on the project uh, about 10 years now. And when I first started was when instruments just were starting to be delivered at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So um, I've at least got to watch some part of the design and implementation um, and through the entire test program launch and now um, through observations and science. So the, the web has been basically decades in, in the makings. Uh, why, why did it launch from South America and not from Cape Canaveral, say? That's a great question. Um, so the James Webb Space Telescope is a joint partnership with NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. So uh, we have such a large rocket, we our large observatory, we needed a really big rocket and um, being an invested project from multiple agencies, the European Space Agency had a large enough rocket, the Ariane 5, and um, a reliable rocket. Right. Uh, so not one of these brand new SpaceX rockets that right. <laughs> you know, an international investment on. Um, <clears throat> so it has a, a good standing history. It was big enough uh, with the capacity to launch us successfully. And um, that contribution was from the European Space Agency. So it actually saved us on our tax dollars. <laughs> so you say it was, a, it was a big rocket. How big is the telescope itself? So the James Webb Space Telescope is so big actually that we had to fold it up just so it could fit inside this extremely large rocket. All right. Uh, the mirror itself has a end-to-end di end diameter of about um, just over 21 feet. And the, the sun shield, which is the large sort of boat looking structure on the bottom of it, um, right. is actually the size of a regulation tennis court. So it's oh very, very large. The, the whole structure stands almost three stories high. It's, 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 it's a very big spacecraft. <laughs> so to get this telescope uh, launched, it's actually, once it's, once it's out there, it's actually bigger than the rocket itself. How did you manage that technology of being able to fold these, this, these mirror panels, correct? Uh, yeah, so we had to fold the mirror and the sunshade. Um, so it took a lot of innovation and challenge to get something so big um, into space. Um, when you think about big, you also think about how heavy it probably is. 
So a lot of engineering went into doing things like lightweighting the structure that supports the observatory. Um, having such a, <clears throat> excuse me, a large sunshade means that that's also a lot of material, a lot of mass. And so <clears throat> what we ended up using was a, a very thin, um, almost like a mylar balloon, <laughs> um, right. it's the capped on um, for the sunshade. So it's very, very thin, very light, but also pretty pliable. And um, each layer actually has a little bit of uh, insulation on the bottom of it with um, like a silicone dope material. And um, so that's why it's kind of purple in color. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the mirror itself, uh, the three mirrors on either side actually fold back. The secondary mirror folds up and over um, and it's the origami telescope. I mean, we had to fold it all the way up in a nice little tiny box um, so that we could successfully launch it. And then um, once we launched, we had a long process of unfolding the telescope in space. Um, it was about a month to do that. So, but everything worked beautifully and we are fully deployed. Now you were mentioning the, uh, the sun shield. Why is it necessary? What, what's the, uh, the main function of this shield? Uh, the main function is as it is called, it is a sun shield. <laughs> um, so most telescopes that we have in space or even that you can think of on the ground are sort of in tubes, right? So you have a mirror at the back of a long tube and that protects the mirror um, from all the light around it so that you get sensitivity on that mirror to see right. something distant. Um, and the Hubble Space Telescope is also in a tube and that protects it from the sun and the earth and um, helps us focus on distant objects. Well, the James Webb Space Telescope was so big um, that we, we putting it in a tube, especially a deployable tube right. would be uh, a, another engineering challenge that we weren't um, quite ready to, to face, I guess. Um, but not only that, but also it is an infrared telescope. So it's extremely sensitive to heat and radiation, not only from the sun, but also from the earth and the moon. So we knew we needed to put it somewhere in space where it could always be sort of protected from that radiation. So we knew we weren't gonna be in something like earth orbit, for example. So we put it a million miles away from earth, a nice cold place in the shade, um, of its sunshade. And that way we could build just a single um, barrier that we could just basically have the sun side of the spacecraft always on the sun, the sun and the earth. And then the cold side will be uh, where we observe um, into the universe. So earlier you were mentioning about uh, getting a look back at the, at the baby universe. How far back in time are we really talking about? The first stars and galaxies of our universe that actually formed. Um, it's, this is a, a huge challenge, um, but something we've designed this observatory to actually do. Um, so we're talking just beyond, you know, the Big Bang, there's an era of uh, reionization that happens. And so we're going to be probing sort of that really early area when the very first, you know, matter starts globulizing and um, <laughs> things start actually becoming, you know, something massive and energetic. And that's where we're going to be probing these very first galaxies, which is really exciting to be able to see all the way back in time um, because it's so far away. It takes that long for it to, like, to actually reach us. Um, so we'll be looking at the infant universe. It's going to be amazing. That'll be fantastic. Now, what, what challenges now lay ahead for Webb? So uh, we still have a lot of work to do before we actually begin our science observations. Um, so we fully deployed our telescope now. We've made it to our million mile journey, journey out to the second Lagrange point. 
um, and insert it into that orbit. So we're now where James Webb Space Telescope is going to live for the next 10 plus years, which is fantastic. Um, so now the process is for the next few months, we have to align the mirrors. So we have 18 segments that make up our primary mirror and we have to make sure each one of those segments all work together as a team to act like one solid mirror. And so this is just a process of collecting some images of a star or some distant point source and finding where each of those mirrors are pointing and then moving them and making sure we put everything in the right spot so it looks like one singular mirror. Um, and that's a, that's a very iterative, slow process. <laughs> in the meantime, we're letting our instruments cool and the telescope itself cool um, down to the temperature that we want to operate at. Um, so we need, as I said, it's an infrared telescope, so we're sensitive to any thermal or heat. So the telescope actually has to be cold enough, so it has to sit in the shade long enough to, to cool down. And once it gets cold enough, we'll, we'll begin turning all of the, well, all the instruments are now powered on, and we'll start actually collecting data and aligning that mirror with each of the instruments, since they all have a different sort of path um, into, into the, each instrument. Um, and then once that's done, we test all the instrument modes, and make sure they're working properly. We make sure, you know, we can track a comet moving across the sky. We make sure that um, we can observe really bright objects like Jupiter and Saturn in our solar system. Um, we test out all of our mechanisms to observe planets around other stars. And once all that's done, next summer, we'll release some beautiful first images uh, to be determined. And um, then science begins. And we already have our first year of science planned. So we're ready to go. I know I'm going to get a lot of questions if you don't tell me what a Lagrange point is. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um, a Lagrange point is what uh, this particular Lagrange point is. A, it's a two body gravitational system. So this is an Earth Sun Lagrange point. We actually have five. So there's one between the Earth and the Sun. There's one on the anti sunward side. There's two on the leading and trailing um, sides of our orbit, and then there's one anti-sun from the Earth. Okay. And so we are in the one that's always away from the sun, orbiting the, the sun with the Earth, um, but we aren't um, in that one finite point. And it's not even a point, it's more like a well. Um, and we're in orbit around that position so that we um, always have access to the sun, we always have access to the Earth, so we don't have to have huge solar panels or, you know, right satellites like you know the size of the spacecraft um so we always have access to those things we're never in the shadow of the earth and the moon um because we're in a nice large orbit and we don't have to use as much fuel to stay there um, because it is gravitationally stable it's like just sitting in this well and just every once in a while we have to burn fuel to basically do what we call station keeping right stay in that orbit so um the sun actually pushes on our giant sun shield um, like a solar sail. So we have to correct our orbit every, every few weeks, it looks like is what we'll be doing. And we also have to unload the momentum. So unfortunately we are a fuel limited mission, um, but we have enough fuel to, to get us through um, at least a decade, probably more. Interesting. How, um, one, of, one of the things that I really love is the, the discovery of exoplanets, and you touched on that briefly. Uh, is that one of the main things that we're kind of be looking for, uh, the uh, probability of more planets out there? Yes. Um, and actually, the, the whole um, exoplanet science community is something that has emerged 
almost in parallel with the JWST project. <laughs> um, so the first exoplanets were actually discovered right around the time the James Webb Space Telescope was coming into to action um, to become a, an actual mission. And so during the design phase, we actually had to start thinking about the implications of and capability that the James Webb Space Telescope should have for exoplanet science. And um, so instruments had to be redesigned and reworked so that we could actually do this kind of science with the James Webb Space Telescope. And yes, absolutely, it is now a priority. It's a hot topic in astrophysics, of course. And um, we wanna know what planets around other stars look like. Are there any that looks like Earth? So what we'll be doing is actually studying the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And these are gonna be planets that we've already known um, that we've you know, found from other facilities or um, surveys or whatever. Webb isn't gonna be searching for new planets, um, at least in not any regular kind of a cadence, unless it's something that we really think is there. Um, but we'll be looking at these planets, these known planets, and we're gonna be studying their atmosphere and see if there's any peculiarities um, with their atmospheres, if they have one. Um, and seeing, you know, is there some process that could possibly be causing this peculiarity? So um, the chemistry may be off. Maybe there's something that's not in equilibrium or, you know, a, a nice happy phase or something throwing it off a little bit. And that could be anything that could be, right. you know, volcanoes that could be um, a, an impact from an asteroid or a comet. You know, it could be um, other geologic processing or weather, or it could be something like life. Um, we're just kind of looking for these clues so that we can do some follow-up observations with other facilities in the future. Well, how incredible will that be? Dr. Stephanie Milam, it has been such a, I could, by the way, I could be talking about this for the next <laughs> hour and a half, but thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Milam, for joining us today, talking about the Webb Space Telescope. Thank you so much. Coming up next, we talk about Webb's future with our special guest, Dr. Phil Plate. We'll even talk about the chance for life in the cosmos. We'll have that when we return. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station. Seven News. Joining us today is a well-known astronomer. You may recognize him from the Science Channel, How the Universe Works. He also spent a decade working on the Hubble Space Telescope. He's an author and a lecturer. Uh, let's uh, welcome uh, Dr. Phil Plate. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Plate. Thanks, uh, glad to be here. Well, let's begin. I know we're gonna talk about the web, but let's begin with Hubble. What did you do on that program? Oh, golly. Well, uh, back in the 1990s, I, uh, <laughs> 1990s, really, I worked on uh, some Hubble images of a star that had exploded. And once I got my degree, I got a job working on a camera that was being built to install on Hubble and is still on there today. Wow. Uh, and uh, what do you think will be the legacy of Hubble? Ha! Huh. There are two ways to answer that. One is the scientific legacy, and, and it's, it's been such a workhorse telescope. Uh, observing objects as close as the moon and as far away as the edge of the observable universe. So it's really had an impact on literally every field of astronomy. Um, and for me, uh, the legacy that I think is maybe just as, if not more important, is the impact it's had on the public. 
before Hubble, I mean, we did have a lot of beautiful images and all of that, but something about these sharp, wonderful Hubble images really connected with the public. And, and if you can, you can ask people, you know, what do they remember? And they remember the pillars of creation, these, these, the deep field, these images of galaxies, all of these incredible things. And I think it really kept astronomy at the top of the public's mind. Now, what is the difference or, or will be the difference between Hubble and Webb? That's an excellent question. And there are a lot of misconceptions about this. People think, I hear this a lot, that the James Webb Space Telescope is the replacement for Hubble. And that's not true. Hubble's still up there. It's still working. It's been 30 something years and it's still going strong. Uh, JWST is going to be a successor to Hubble. This is a massive telescope. It's bigger. Um, but it's designed to look at infrared light. And this is the kind of light our eyes cannot see. You can think of it as, you know, thermal light, like heat radiation, right. but objects in space, like say dust surrounding stars that gets warmed by the starlight and emits infrared light. Um, Hubble can't see that uh, out very far. And James Webb will be able to take that, that much farther out. We'll see colors uh, and wavelengths of light that Hubble can't see. So we're going to learn more about things like planets around other stars, how stars and planets form, uh, the role dust takes in galaxies. We'll be able to see galaxies uh, much farther away um, because those tend to give off more infrared light than the kind of light we see. So again, like Hubble, there's not going to be any area of astronomy that James Webb isn't going to help. So this is going to be a fairly amazing thing, and it's going to pick up pretty much where Hubble can't see. Now, when you say that uh, uh, Webb is going to be working mostly in infrared, is that the, the most um, important wavelength out there in the universe? Well, I don't want to be wavelengthist. I don't know if that's a <laughs> word. I don't think that's a word. Um, these are all just different uh, colors of light. You know, when you see a rainbow, for example, and you have red, green, and all that, those are just uh, different wavelengths of light. Right. And those are the ones we can see, but there are wavelengths outside of what we can see. Ultraviolet, infrared, radio waves, x-rays, these all have their uses. And for a long time, we could only observe the universe in visible light. That's all our telescopes could do. But mm -hmm. nowadays, we can look at every wavelength of light, and they tell us different things. Because there are different objects out there that have different physics that makes them emit light. And so some things emit radio waves, some things emit infrared, some things emit at all wavelengths. And all those different wavelengths tell us different things about the engines that are driving the mechanism that makes that light. And uh, speaking of uh, uh, web and, and being able to see far out, how far out will, or, or back in time, will web be able to see? That is an hour long answer that I'm willing to give you right now. Um, <laughs> The universe is, it has a, a finite distance we can see to because the, the speed of light is finite. It only travels a certain speed. And the universe is a little over, a uh, little under 14 billion years old. So that's as far as we can see. That's all the amount of time that light has had to reach us. So objects that are that far away, that's it. That's sort of the limit we can see. And Hubble can get almost out that far. And we have telescopes on Earth that can see very far as well. So it's it's not really that, that James Webb is going to see a lot farther. Uh, it's going to see incrementally farther, a little bit farther. But uh, the important thing is that you know, every small increment we can get farther away in distance, the younger we are seeing objects. So 
because it takes light time to get here, if it takes 13 billion years to get here for one galaxy and 13.5 for another, we're seeing that other galaxy as it was when it was 500 million years younger. And that's around the time these galaxies were forming. So the, the farther away we can see, the, the more distant into the past we can see, if you want to think of it that way, the more we'll understand about what the young universe was like, how galaxies were made, how stars are born, all of that stuff. And uh, what do you think the legacy of Webb will be? Ooh, that's or a the tough biggest, one. Given, or, or, um, or its biggest surprise. What, what do you think might be the biggest surprise? You know, I get that question a lot, too. It's like, you know, what, what do you think the biggest surprise will be or, or, or what are we going to learn? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, the funny thing about surprises, they're surprising. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, with Hubble, you don't know what the most surprising thing is going to be. Uh, it could be that the way stars die is a lot more interesting than we thought. One of Hubble's legacies is, um, and I'm I know I'm talking about Hubble, not James Webb, but I, I want to make the point. That, for example, we knew the universe um, is expanding. We've known this for over a century. Um, what Hubble helped with ground-based telescopes, but one of the things that Hubble was able to do is see distant galaxies uh, expanding away from us faster than we expected. And we realized the universal expansion is accelerating. It's getting faster every day. And this is a huge surprise. Um, and I don't think anybody really could have predicted this uh, the way it turned out. And so James Webb, I don't know. You know, it's, it's going to be looking at, at planets around other stars. Are we going to find new kinds of planets? We're already seeing that there are wacky planets out there that nobody really predicted. Uh, and it's it, the universe seems more like it's been built along the lines of Star Trek than anything else. It's <laughs> doing all kinds of things. Uh, maybe Webb will, will help us find that. Maybe it'll see structures early on in the universe that we we kind of thought maybe there wasn't enough time for those things to to figure themselves out and we know that the universe has structure on these huge scales kind of like kind of like scaffolding that that stars and galaxies are, are are formed around you know maybe these things form faster than we thought maybe they form slower than we thought maybe there are more forces out there maybe 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 i don't know um and that's that's the beauty of science right we we have this vast database of knowledge we're changing it all the time and sometimes we're adding to it and sometimes we're yanking parts out because they don't fit anymore and replacing it with new stuff. Uh, and I can tell you that that is absolutely going to happen with web. That is not a risky prediction at all. Uh, and that we're going, and I can't tell you specifically what the surprises are, but I can absolutely 100% rock solid guarantee that there will be surprises. That is fabulous. Um, we have just one more thing left. We do a, sure. a segment every once in a while. Uh, we are Channel 7 here in South Florida, and we do a segment called Seven Questions. Seven Questions. So uh -oh. I'm going to ask you seven rapid-fire questions, and you give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Oh, God. All right. <laughs> first, one. when talking about space, what keeps you up at night and why? Uh, solar storms. Uh, maybe that should keep me up during the day because it's with the sun. But the sun can erupt in these enormous uh, solar flares and these, these storms called coronal mass ejections. And these can actually affect our satellites. They can damage our power structure. These things happen. Uh, we're finding out that they're happening a little more often than we thought. They're very damaging. And these are things we need to be taking seriously. All right. Two. Mars. Will we be able to colonize it and when? Um, we can put people on Mars. I think it, that's just a series of engineering difficulties. Um, I, I question why we want to do it and how we're going to do it in the long term. Um, but when, um, certainly if we, if we really put our minds to it in the next century, 
uh, you know, some people want to do it in the next few years. I don't know. But, you know, 20, 30 years, eh, 50, 50 odds. Okay. Three. What will be the next major discovery in astronomy? <laughs> uh, uh, golly, I don't know. That's, that's, you know, that is just so wide open a question. Um, uh, 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 all of our government officials have been replaced with aliens. Uh, no, don't, don't air that. Um, not you can, talk about you that. can take a pass if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I, I couldn't tell you what that is. There's just every single day there are cool discoveries. So who knows what's next? All right. Four. The comet that came from outside our solar system, Oumuamua, will we ever see anything like it again? Absolutely. In fact, after Oumuamua passed us, and this is a, we, we still don't know re exactly what it was, but this was something that was moving too rapidly to have been a member of our solar system. This object came from another star. Right, um, right after we discovered it, another one was found called Borisef, uh, Borisov uh, right. Comet. And uh, we expect that there's probably something like that in the solar system all the time, it's just that they're hard to find. So yeah, uh, with bigger telescopes and better surveys, we're gonna be seeing a lot more of these things. Five. Best spot in our solar system to find life? Earth. Okay. Six. Done, that was yeah, easy. That, that's, um, that's if, you, if you mean someplace else, <laughs> um, there are a lot of icy moons around the outer planets. Jupiter has this moon called Europa. Saturn has Enceladus, there's also Titan, Dione, Mimas, all these moons. And we think they, um, many of them have liquid water oceans under their surface. So you know, could they have life on them? We don't know, but you know, liquid water, that's, that's pretty interesting. And, and is water still the main uh, focus for life? Yes, and, and some people say, well, you're prejudiced because life on earth arose from water. And it's like, well, yeah, but also water is just this really awesome uh, thing to have to support life because you can dump a bunch of minerals in it and they can dance around and, and you can dump energy in there as well and make complex molecules with it. So uh, having liquid water is um, may not the maybe not the only way to get life to arise, but it's certainly a really, really good one. Six. Is there really a planet nine? Maybe. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I can't say yes or no, but uh, we think that there could be another major planet out past Neptune. Uh, you know, feel as you want to feel about Pluto, um, but there may be this other big planet, maybe bigger than Earth, way, way out in the solar system. And it's, it's kind of fiddling with other objects out there gravitationally. And that's why we think it's out there. Just haven't found it yet, but there are people looking for it really hard right now. You're asking about what the next major big discovery could be, could be that. Okay. Might find that one. The seventh and last question. Seven. Okay. Uh, you, were, you were talking about uh, government officials becoming aliens. <laughs> Intelligent life outside our solar system, still a possibility? Sure, it's a possibility. Um, we know that um, the Earth got life on it pretty quickly after it cooled. We, we, we've been able to trace life back way more than even three billion years, more like four billion years. And the Earth isn't much older than that. And it, there's a lot of arguments about here, physics and statistics and all kinds of things. But in the end, it's probable that life can, can arise on a planet relatively easily if conditions are right. And we know that there are billions, billions with a B mm -hmm. of planets in our galaxy that are like Earth. There, there could be hundreds of billions of planets or trillions, um, but a lot of those are gonna be like Earth. They may have liquid water, they may have the right temperature, atmospheres and everything they need to get life to arise. The question is, can intelligent life arise? Right. Yeah, depending on how, what you mean by intelligent. Um, you know, I look around me sometimes and I scratch my head. But <laughs> uh, even given that, 
Um, that would be extremely rare. Uh, and people are still trying to figure this out. But is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? Uh, I don't know. That's a great answer. Uh, Dr. Play, can you tell our listeners and our followers uh, uh, about your website and your books and where to find them? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm currently writing the Bad Astronomy blog. If you just looked that up, Bad Astronomy, uh, you'll find everything you need to know about me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I write for Sci-Fi Wire. Uh, I've got a newsletter at Substack, badastronomy.substack.com. And you can find all my information there. Perfect. That sounds wonderful, Dr. Plate. This has been great. I've been looking forward to meeting you and talking with you. And uh, it has been wonderful to uh, have a chat with you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And now, a Bill fact. Our solar system sits in one of the spiral bands within the Milky Way galaxy. It rotates at 560,000 miles per hour, and it takes 200 million years to make a full revolution. In our next issue, a marine special. You go to the beach and see those flags waving by the lifeguard stand. They are there for your safety. Do you know what they mean? Meteorologist Erica Delgado with the story. Plus, sail drones have made a huge splash. No pun intended. An update by meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. That's all coming up in our next edition of Weather or Not, which drops July 5th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sayhouse. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.